Hello and welcome to the Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center Pain Management Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hoves. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And today we're going to be talking about shoulder pain. Um, so Dr. K, why don't you start us off and give us a little uh, background, maybe a little bit of information on why we're discussing this topic. Yeah, and some things I wanted to cover <clears throat> predominantly was the epidemiology of shoulder pain, a little bit about the differential diagnosis, then we'll go into the diagnostic workup for shoulder pain, uh, including the approach to the physical exam. And lastly, we'll talk about treatment options for shoulder pain, including when to consider consultation or uh, when to refer out. So starting with epidemiology, real quickly, as we know, shoulder pain is a very common presentation to the primary care setting. The literature largely uh, uh, supports that about uh, si- about 16% of all musculoskeletal uh, um, complaints or presentations to the primary care office will be uh, shoulder, pain, shoulder pain as a chief complaint. 16%? Yes, of musculoskeletal uh, uh, huh. chief complaints. I don't know that I would have guessed that. Yeah. I, um, I mean, we know back is the highest. Um, I don't know. I guess I always thought about probably knee um, I guess knee and shoulder right after back then, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you know which one was higher? Knee a little bit higher than shoulder, but both of them, yeah, coming up after back. Mm. Yeah. 16%. That's, that is a lot higher than I anticipated. And another way to think about it would be per 1,000 patients presenting to a, a primary care office, there will be about 15 new episodes per 1,000 patients seen in the primary care setting of uh, shoulder, uh, shoulder pain complaints or shoulder pain uh, um, chief complaints. So in terms of the differential diagnosis of that shoulder pain uh, chief complaint, of course, <clears throat> there are quite a few different uh, pathologies that could be uh, causing shoulder pain, but some of the big things to think about, obviously, rotator cuff disorders, and this can include tendonitis, tendinopathy, calcific tendinopathy, partial or complete uh, rotator cuff tears, glenohumeral disorders, including glenohumeral osteoarthritis, uh, labrum pathology, adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder, uh, acromioclavicular joint pathology, biceps tendon pathology, and again, uh, considering tendonitis, tendinopathy, and uh, along the lines of both biceps as well as glenohumeral disorders, you can think of the slap tear or the superior labrum anterior to posterior tear, which includes the avulsion uh, injury to the root of the long head of the biceps tendon. And then importantly, anytime we have shoulder pain, it's also important for us to think about cervical pathology referring to the uh, shoulder itself, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later as well, but that could be a radiculopathy, a radiculitis, uh, cervical uh, facet joint pain referring to the shoulder. It's something that I always like to refer to as schneck pain. Yes, uh, that's, <laughs> that's a good... <laughs> one, one of our attendings in, uh, when we were in residency used to talk about it as a schneck pain, and I've, I've always loved that phrase. You know, you got that kind of non-specific somewhere between your neck and your shoulder, uh, causing you causing you pain. And I think basically what you're saying is there's a lot of different structures, uh, all of which can be pain generators, and um, kind of makes things a little bit more complicated than just you know thinking of it as a one 
one joint of a shoulder, right? I mean, uh, unfortunately, it seems like that's kind of the case with all of these musculoskeletal difficulties we come across, right? We talk, we've already talked about the back at length, about the, all the number of different pain generators. You just listed off about 10 different things that can all cause pain uh, when somebody presents with quote-unquote shoulder pain. Right, absolutely. And, and along those lines, and we'll discuss this in much more uh, deta- detail in a little bit, but um, with shoulder pain, it's important to not just think rotator cuff or osteoarthritis of the shoulder and then order an image and then say, aha, yes, they do have arthritis of the shoulder. They do have a rotator cuff tear. That's what we're dealing with. The history and physical, I know we hear that all the time with all different fields of medicine, but especially when it comes to musculoskeletal pathology and especially when it comes to the shoulder, the history and the physical exam are critical. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that is. The last thing I wanted to talk about you know, aside from the common things like the rotator cuff disorders, glenohumeral joint disorders, AC joint disorders, referred pain from the neck, there's also less common pathology that we don't necessarily have to memorize, but we do want to have uh, to keep in the back of our mind. Um, That would be things like Parsons-Turner syndrome, which is a brachial plexus neuritis, thoracic outlet syndrome, suprascapular nerve injury. So just keeping in mind that um, although there are the common disorders, if people aren't getting better, there are other things to, to consider that may require further uh, diagnostic workup or uh, specialist evaluation. So as we mentioned, the history and physical exam are critical uh, to guide our differential diagnosis and our consequent um, diagnostic workup and treatment. There are some helpful Uh, history components that may help narrow down the differential diagnosis. Um, So some of those that I thought that the uh, American Academy of uh, Family Practice did a a good job of kind of summarizing, we'll go over uh, briefly here. But age is one thing to consider, right? So if you have someone coming in who's uh, younger than 40 years old, um, think about things like rotator cuff tendinopathy, instability of the shoulder joint. If they're older than 40 40, 40 years old, Think more along the lines of rotator cuff tears, adhesive capsulitis, uh, glenohumeral joint osteoarthritis. Next thing that may come in the history would be disorders like diabetes or thyroid disorders. As we know, those increase your risk of developing adhesive capsulitis or a frozen shoulder. A history of trauma. So this brings in to uh, age, and I think this is very, very true clinically. So if you have a history of trauma, and someone younger than 40, uh, you may be thinking shoulder dislocation or subluxation, but if that patient is older than 40 with a history of trauma, especially if they've reached out and tried to grab something to prevent their fall, think about a rotator cuff uh, tear in that setting. Loss of range of motion, if the patient's reporting that to you, again, think of uh, frozen shoulder adhesive capsulitis or uh, significant glenohumeral osteoarthritis. Pain at night, especially if the patient's telling you, hey, I'm not able to sleep on my right side or left side, that's a key to rotator cuff disorders. Um, if they're having any neurologic symptoms, obviously that's going to start to make you or make you start to think about cervical disorders, thoracic outlet syndrome, Parsons-Turner syndrome, some uh, neurologic uh, condition contributing to the sh- uh, shoulder pain itself. And then the location is huge. So when they say they have shoulder pain, it's a 
a simple, easy thing to do to, to have them point to it because that's going to give you a lot of information. If they're uh, pointing anteriorly and a little bit uh, medially, then you may be thinking more AC joint. If they're uh, point, pointing diffusely more out to their lateral uh, shoulder region, then you may be thinking more rotator cuff uh, disorders. If they're kind of placing their hand on their shoulder and saying it's right in between there, then maybe you're thinking more glenohumeral joints. So location, as, as always, is key. Pain with overhead activities, you're going to be thinking more rotator cuff uh, issues. <clears throat> and then if you have an individual who's younger participating in sports, then you're definitely going to be thinking about some instability, whether that's a labral pathology. Um, <clears throat> and you may see that with baseball, softball, tennis, overhead uh, um, activities in sports. And then if you have a weightlifter, something to think about, especially with shoulder pain and anterior shoulder pain would be AC joint pathology. So now moving on to our uh, differential, uh, sorry, our diagnostic workup and specifically our physical exam. So I'd like to hear, uh, uh, Dr. Hovis, your, your approach to the patient. I'll just quickly mention mine. So as we always talk about in medicine, it's very important to be systematic, whether that's emergency situation or whether you're in the clinic. That way you, uh, you um, are not forgetting things and, and you're making sure you're, you're covering all your bases. So my systematic approach to the shoulder exam, which is going to be very common, uh, very similar to a lot of the musculoskeletal exams we do, is starting with my musculoskeletal exam. So inspection, palpation, range of motion, I always do. And then I move to my neurologic exam, strength, sensation, reflexes, tone, and lastly, I move to my special test. And we'll talk about those in a second and for the shoulder and some of the common ones that we'll do as well as some of the sensitivities and specificities just to give us an idea of how we really need to um, correlate those physical exam findings to our history as well as compare them to other uh, special tests and put them all together because any one test is not going to be uh, give us a definitive diagnosis. But along those lines, Dr. Hovis, uh, your typical approach to a shoulder exam yeah, I mean, very similar, right? I mean, it, all of the uh, exam algorithms, uh, as you said, tend to sound the same and uh, be placed together in the same format because it always makes it easier for us not to forget things. Um, you know, the, the shoulder being one of those uh, interesting examinations that, you know, you can really learn a lot just by taking a look at somebody, which I do think is a little bit different than if we were talking about a back, where a back, you know, especially... A lot of our patients that we see, patients tend to be a little bit uh, rounder. Um, you can't really see a lot of the uh, the structures very well, um, and so inspection, uh, you know, though it's necessary, isn't always going to give you the most unless you're talking about inspecting their gait or the way that they're moving around. Um, for the shoulder, when somebody takes their shirt off and you actually are able to look at, you know, the entirety of everything that makes up the shoulder complex, right? You know, not just. Uh, the glenohumeral component, but also looking at their uh, their clavicle and looking at the way that their scapula sits and and the way that you know their shoulder is compared to the other one in terms of its rise and where it looks how it uh, slopes from the neck. All of those I think are uh, much more impactful than just about for any joint that we evaluate. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that when we're teaching residents or medical students or any of the students that come through that we always talk about is if you're going to do a shoulder exam have a shirt taken off, right? It's probably the most important uh, joint examination to truly visualize everything. And everything's important to be visualized. And I don't mean to say that you shouldn't do this at other times, uh, but the shoulder is is probably the most important because you can learn so much just by um, 
properly seeing everything and everything that's involved with a shoulder is a little bit more challenging because you do have to think about the that whole scapular complex uh, and so once you kind of start from there go through that algorithm and then you get into you know obviously getting into the uh, you're ruling out all of the other things that could be coming causing uh, pain in that area from coming from the neck um, or uh, coming from places that aren't necessarily within uh, the shoulder joint complex that we think about and then getting on specifically to the special test so you can narrow down the differential within all of those structures that you had mentioned in the shoulder joint. Um, so why don't you lead us through some of the uh, the basic shoulder exam maneuvers that uh, people think about, people talk about, um, and obviously you know, you've already alluded to the fact that no one test is uh, end-all be-all test and so usually putting together a, a number of different tests uh, is the appropriate thing to both rule in and rule out and uh, diagnoses and can at least get us towards the most likely potential uh, pain generator. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. And real quick before I dive into the special test, just wanted to mention, you know, Dr. Hovas, he's been a, a great friend as well as an awesome mentor to me throughout my career. And I still remember the first time uh, I, I was a junior resident to him uh, and he was showing me a shoulder exam and, and please correct me if I'm wrong in terms of your uh, typical approach by member in that incidence and because I, th I think this is a good thing to always do so in addition to having the patient remove their shirt uh, another good thing to do is to be standing behind and a little bit to the side of the patient um, so essentially you're kind of posterior lateral to the patient and your hand is on their shoulder uh, for multiple reasons number one you can stabilize it during special tests but also you're feeling how that scapula is moving. Um, you're seeing, you're really able to observe how that scapula is moving. So simply having your hands on the patients for multiple reasons, like I said, to stabilize during special tests, but also to uh, get a palpatory feel of how the scapula is moving during abduction or forward flexion, I think can help a lot too. Do you still agree? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that, definitely still uh, the way that I do my shoulder exams. Yeah, the scapular dyskinesis and the way that it actually moves uh, can add so much to the ability of understanding exactly what's going on uh, with the shoulder. So yeah, I, I still do my exams mostly from uh, from behind. Uh, the, my exam usually does involve me putting both both hands on both scapulas and watching as they're uh, going through their active range of motion and being able to see how those scapulas are moving along with uh, the rest of the shoulder complex. Yeah. So moving on to special tests, and we won't discuss necessarily all of them, but some of the common things we do, because obviously one of the most common causes of shoulder pain would be uh, rotator cuff uh, tendinopathy. So with those tests, some of the things that we can utilize to evaluate for rotator cuff tendinopathy would be Hawkins uh, impingement. So as we know with Hawkins, you're going to uh, have the patient uh, bring the uh, forearm up, so essentially elbow flexion to about 90 degrees. You're going to abduct to about 90 degrees, and this, this whole time you're helping the patient do this. You're stabilizing uh, potentially with your, with your offhand, and, and uh, uh, you're, with the other hand you're lifting up their arm. And then you're bringing <clears throat> their arm in, adduction again to about 90 degrees, and then you're internally rotating the arm. And uh, um, yes, yeah, so you can easily look up Hawkins and see how exactly that's done, but that's a very common uh, impingement uh, test uh, that we do. And then empty can we all know about. I think one good thing to remember with empty can is you're 
you don't necessarily have to have them abduct all the way to 90 degrees initially. In fact, I think it's good to start um, with some more slight abduction and gradually work your way up and kind of see where they start to have a lot of discomfort. But bottom line is you're abducting your, your uh, <coughs> uh, adducting the, the shoulder um, uh, to some degree as well, getting in, in plane with the scapula and then you're turning uh, the thumb down to the floor um, and then you're giving a little bit of resistance as they try to uh, further bring the arm up or abduct the, the shoulder. Um, and then lastly, with uh, impingement signs, I also like to do nears. Uh, and for that, their hands, their arms are at their sides. You have them um, uh, bring the, uh, turn the hand so that the back of the hand is, is against the, uh, against the, the thigh of the patient. And then they're forward flexing the arm up and see how high they can get up. If they have bad impingement, they won't most likely will not be able to get it up too far. And so bottom line is you're taking multiple tests, uh, evaluating one common pathology to see is, are the, is one equivocal, the other two negative, or all three very positive? Because uh, it's good, like I said, to do multiple tests. Just as a quick example of the sensitivity and specificity. So what they have found um, in the research that's been done for Hawkins impingement, impingement as an example test, uh, the sensitivity that has been found to be around 72% with a specificity of 66%. For empty can, the sensitivity being about 44% with a much better specificity of 90%. Um, and then as an example of the AC joint, so as we uh, may refer that to as the Apley scarf test or crossbody adduction, uh, that has a sensitivity about 77% and a specificity of 79%. So not to memorize the numbers, but just uh, to keep us um, always thinking about the sensitivity and specificity of any test we order, whether that's an imaging test, a lab test, or, or a physical exam maneuver. Um, so always important to put all the puzzle pieces uh, together. Yeah, and so with you know physical exam maneuvers and this kind of works for the shoulder, works for just about everything else. Um, you know, no no test is perfect. You know, putting together a, a handful, especially for common pathologies such as uh, rotator cuff or uh, impingement, is always a good idea. It gives us a higher likelihood that we're going to uh, get the appropriate diagnosis. Um, of course, now in a twenty nineteen world, generally speaking, once we get there, we're probably going to get some imaging uh, studies. Um, and so I know there are some guidelines that have been put out in terms of the way that imaging studies should go. Uh, I think we both have some different, differing opinions on how some of this may or may not uh, be appropriate for the general workup for a shoulder. Um, you know, I think that the American Academy of Family Practice uh, believes that everybody should get radiographs of their, for the initial workup of chronic shoulder pain. Um, yeah, mainly this is to rule out fracture, right? Make sure that there's nothing that's that you can see that you're you're missing extremely. Uh, I I think generally speaking, I'm probably a little softer on this this fact of things unless there's a, a clear um, fall where there's a risk for uh, for fracture. I'm not the biggest uh, fan of uh, sending patient for an extra study at, at that point, unless we can just get it along with getting some other more advanced uh, imaging that could actually help us with uh, diagnosis. I don't know, Dr. K, you have thoughts on that? Yeah, so, you know, I think imaging is an interesting thing to think about with the shoulders. So I think this comes down to, uh, if, I, if I were imagining as a practitioner approaching shoulder pain, so if, the patient has red flags, and we'll talk about you know what those red flags could be. But bottom line, red flags would be uh, uh, concern for fracture, obviously, concern for instability, 
um, if there's signs or symptoms concerning for infection, uh, cancer, um, if that's present, then yes, absolutely, we're gonna be getting most likely x-rays as well as advanced uh, imaging. If you're approaching the shoulder and you feel very confident um, that you know uh, a specific uh, diagnosis is present, let's say that the patient's um, uh, symptoms, their physical exam, they all fit with AC joint pathology and you really want to know the degree of AC joint osteoarthritis that is there um, because you, um, maybe they haven't responded to initial physical therapy and you're considering doing an injection. I think, you know, in those situations, I think it's reasonable to, to consider imaging as well. So bottom line, red flags, if you're thinking about the next step therapy-wise and you want guidance in terms of how to approach it, I think it's reasonable then. In the situation where you're, it's unclear what is causing the shoulder pain. Um, there's no red flags. Just getting imaging to getting imaging, I think maybe a better next step if, if you're not sure what the diagnosis is and the patient hasn't responded to physical therapy and there's no red flags, maybe a referral to a specialist might be um, uh, a good next step in that situation because, for example, uh, if we uh, see the patient in our clinic and we, uh, let's say that we determine that, hey, you know, this, this is uh, definitely rotator cuff uh, tendinopathy, um, we may not need to necessarily order an x-ray unless the patient is refractory to the uh, initial therapies that we plan to do. And do you agree with that? Yeah, Dr. no, I, th I, think that's, I think that's a very reasonable uh, way to think about it because, you know, generally speaking, like I said, I, I, I don't know that, you know, getting uh, imaging on every shoulder pain patient uh, is absolutely necessary. Um, but yeah, for somebody who doesn't respond to the normal things uh, may be somebody that we need to start looking at them. And so let's use that as a nice transition to start talking about what those normal things are. So when it comes to thinking about the treatment approach to shoulder pain, very similar to most of the musculoskeletal conditions that we uh, end up treating, it's good to think through what we've emphasized over and over again, lifestyle modifications, activity modifications, therapies, medical equipment, medications, procedures, surgery, uh, further diagnostic workup, and then consultations if necessary. The, um, uh, from a more conservative approach, like I mentioned, the early on lifestyle activity uh, therapies and med and uh, medical equipment, specifically talking about the uh, physical therapy. Generally, for any shoulder pain that comes in, obviously that's going to be where we start. Um, it can help quite a bit if uh, during the history and examination, you, uh, and then with any diagnostic workup that was done, you can give a little guidance to the physical therapist um, because you know shoulder pain, like we talked about, there's so many different etiologies, uh, so many potential different causes. So that physical therapy has the potential to be much more powerful and effective if um, the a therapist does at least have a uh, diagnosis, um, a specific diagnosis that they can be working with. Yeah, and so when we're looking at physical therapy for the shoulder, obviously uh, the rotator cuff muscles are some of the most prominent uh, portions uh, of the exercise routine to build up those muscles, but also working on some of the postural muscles as well, right? Because as we work on our posture, we're going to pull back that uh, chromium and be able to make a little bit more room for the rotator cuff, decrease any impingement signs. Uh, and so those are really, really important things to make sure that we're working with the therapist, working with the patient, helping them understand that 
you know, we can really make a significant difference for overall shoulder pain with doing these exercises. But once again, it takes consistency. It takes them really being on top of uh, all of the exercises and really doing them on a regular basis to be able to help things. Yeah, and, and uh, one other thing with the physical therapy, I think that, you know, on your palpatory exam, oftentimes a shoulder girdle is going to be quite tender um, with potential uh, trigger points. And I know there's uh, definitely conflicting literature out there in terms of uh, being able to identify trigger points, trigger points. But bottom line, oftentimes with uh, the shoulder problems, the shoulder girdle is very tender with uh, some tight muscle spasms. So uh, adding to the physical therapy uh, prescriptions, some myofascial release techniques uh, when, when uh, indicated, I think can also be helpful for these patients, especially if they're starting to get some uh, cervical pathology associated with their uh, shoulder issues. Um, now, Thinking about the treatments, especially if the patients are not responding to physical therapy and our typical uh, medications like Tylenol, NSAIDs, topicals, um, you know, now we start to think about uh, procedure options. And one thing I want to emphasize with this is that we're not just limited to steroid injections at this point in time. And, and I think that's something we want to emphasize that we have a lot of tools uh, available uh, to us in terms of uh, treating not just shoulders presenting for the first time with pain, but also for patients who may have had uh, prior uh, sur uh, shoulder surgeries and are still having symptoms. Um, as an example, and I know Dr. Hovez has his own approaches uh, to this uh, situation as well, but I can uh, definitely think of multiple patients that I've seen clinically over the last year or so where they've had chronic post-surgical pain after multiple uh, shoulder surgeries, and uh, including um, uh, including uh, shoulder arthroplasty. And even in that setting, we have things such as the very safe uh, erector spinae block that not only has literature behind it, but also clinically I've seen work well for these conditions. So it's a very simple, very safe procedure that we can uh, make some progress uh, for these patients that are otherwise really struggling. And then <clears throat> uh, taking a quick step back for those patients who haven't had surgical intervention yet and they're maybe presenting for the first time, uh, but they haven't responded to the therapies and the medications and maybe that first uh, steroid injection. You know, there are uh, other things that we can consider in the regenerative medicine realm, including uh, platelet-rich plasma uh, injections for tendinopathy. And as we know, tendinopathy is one of the areas where uh, platelet-rich plasma, PRP, has the most uh, evidence behind it. Yeah. And so, you know, when we're, even when we're thinking about that first uh, injection, you know, there was a recent study that was published uh, that actually showed that if we use some of the technology that's now available for us, such as an ultrasound, uh, to do a diagnostic uh, block beforehand, uh, where we actually go down, we put just one cc of lidocaine, local anesthetic, uh, right over uh, the supraspinatus, where uh, we would expect that it would be getting impinged or where we would be feeling any of the rotator cuff tendinopathy. Uh, and then we reproduce any of the shoulder maneuvers that were causing the patient pain. A diagnostic block like that before doing our first injection can significantly increase uh, the rates at which patients respond, right? If a patient does better off of that one cc of local anesthetic, basically repeat the same uh, procedure, right? Go back to that same area. We can use the steroid, which is still the bread and butter, tried and true um, standard of care for uh, the first injection into the shoulder. Uh, and that's significantly more likely to benefit the patient. If they don't get benefit when you put the local anesthetic into that area, maybe doing a glenohumeral joint injection is actually going to be the thing that is going to help that patient do better. Uh, in this one particular study that was published a few months ago, uh, you basically take a, sh a general shoulder injection, which on the most part has a success rate in the 
depending on the study, somewhere between 40 and 60% range. Uh, and with doing this one cc of lidocaine beforehand for a diagnostic block, they were able to increase uh, the rate of responders uh, into the 70, 80% range. And that's a really big difference for patients, right? We also don't know how long this is gonna last. A lot of times if we can calm it down, get them back into physical therapy, do the right things, that would be the ideal situation. Um, but then again, after that, sometimes it is necessary to consider some of the regenerative options, even discussing things with our surgical colleagues, uh, if at all necessary. Uh, and you know, Dr. Carvel has already brought up you know, some of the more advanced procedures uh, that sometimes to treat refractory shoulder pain. This isn't necessarily a conversation on treating refractory shoulder pain, but the erector spinae block is something that's really interesting. You know, there's also uh, suprascapular nerve and axillary nerve blocks that can be done, uh, or even doing a pulsed radio frequency of those nerves uh, can be very, very successful uh, in treating some of those kind of chronic refractory shoulder pains. Um, probably a much more uh, detailed conversation than we were looking to have at this point. Um, but anything else that you wanted to add to that? No, yeah, I think just the biggest point that I wanted to emphasize was that uh, a single uh, steroid injection is not the only, you know, uh, for a rotator cuff tendinopathy, that's not the only tool we have available to us. So uh, just uh, because a patient has not responded to um, a subacromial steroid injection, does, that does not mean we're out of options. And there's still a, quite a bit that we can explore and try to get the patient better. Absolutely. Well, Dr. K, thanks as always for uh, dropping some knowledge on us, uh, helping us to better understand the shoulder girdle, the shoulder joint, and all of the different ways that we can help uh, patients with uh, pain as they're presenting uh, with pain in the shoulder area. Um, we'll continue working our way through the body and looking at different areas that patients present with pain commonly, and hopefully you guys are finding some value out of this. Uh, once again, this is uh, only for entertainment and education purposes only. This is not meant to deem medical advice or a patient-physician relationship. Uh, hope you guys are doing well, and we will see you next week. Have a good week. Bye.